welcome everyone to Big Tent USA and our first Spotlight Speaker event of 2022. We are kicking it off with a bang, not a whimper. Big Tent USA is a national women-led pro-democracy organization promoting civic engagement through education and activism. To learn more about us, please check out our website, bigtentusa.org, and follow us on social media at Big Tent USA. If you don't receive our newsletters, please sign up for them as well. Vanessa will put the link in the chat. Before we get started, I'm excited to share with you two upcoming events. A woman who needs no introduction, Representative Liz Cheney, will join us on Wednesday, January 26th at 7 o'clock. And on Tuesday, February 8th at noon, we will hear from Jackie Payne, founder and executive director of Galvanize USA, another women-led organization doing great work. Um, as we book speakers and events uh, into 22, 2022, of course, we will update you on our website and through newsletters and emails. So please sign up for the newsletter so you stay on top of all that is to come. And now on to the main event. I'm so pleased and proud to welcome Rhode Island's junior Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. In the United States Senate, Sheldon Whitehouse has earned a reputation as a fierce advocate for progressive values and a thoughtful legislator capable of reaching across the aisle to achieve bipartisan solutions and taking on big special interests. Senator Whitehouse's work in the Senate has focused on the defense of Social Security and Medicaid, delivery system reform in our healthcare system, the integrity and independence of the federal courts, the health of our oceans and coasts, campaign finance reform, and improving America's infrastructure. A graduate of Yale University and the University of Virginia School of Law, Sheldon served in senior roles in state government before his appointment by President Clinton as Rhode Island's U United States Attorney in 1994. He was then elected Attorney General of Rhode Island in 1998 and in 2006 to the Senate, where he serves on the Finance Committee, the Judiciary Committee, the Environment and Public Works Committee, and the Budget Committee. He also serves as Chairman of the Senate Caucus on international narcotics control. And as many of you have seen on social media and YouTube, he does one heck of a very mean poster board presentation. I wanna remind attendees to use the live transcript at the bottom if needed, and to please put questions in the chat for Senator Whitehouse. So once Senator Whitehouse comes back. Right here. <laughs> Just putting on the putting some, some other lights yeah. on. Yeah, Senator Whitehouse has had a very busy uh, day and evening and we really thank you for your time, Senator Whitehouse. So I'm gonna let you take it away. Thank you, Kitty. Great to be with you. And I gather the topic of the evening is gonna be built mostly around dark money. So let me just give you a quick um, survey of how this came to be. Um, basically because of Citizens United. What Citizens United did was allow unlimited money into politics. And once you could spend huge amounts of money in politics, it became increasingly important to be able to hide who you were. If the most you can give is $5,000, then what the hell you might as well be identified. But if you're gonna drop $5 million into a race, it could be really important to hide who you are. So figuring out how to hide who you are came very quickly, particularly to the fossil fuel industry. And I saw it right away because literally the day that Citizens United was decided was the day that bipartisanship on climate change collapsed in the Senate. 
And as I got frustrated about climate change and started giving speeches about climate change, I started looking into what the hell was going wrong. And it all kept coming back to dark money and to a network of front groups that hid the hands of the dark money and that worked together. They've been estimated, you know, 60 or 80 operating at any given time. You can think of them a little bit like piano keys. And if you see a player piano move, you know how weird it is when the keys move without a piano player. Here there actually is a piano player, but it's hidden behind the uh, dark money. And it's primarily the fossil fuel industry, um, but it has big ambitions and dark money is so powerful and so effective in politics because it can move so fast and it can move surreptitiously because you can threaten somebody with a huge dark money buy and you never even have to make the buy if they do what you want just on the threat alone. And so the effect of it has been astonishingly powerful and because it's so powerful, these guys have decided that they're gonna use it in a whole lot of different circumstances. So climate denial was the first big dark money enterprise, but they move very rapidly into court capture. And what you've read about how these judges got on the court and why it's now a six to three right-wing court, how they got picked by dark money donors, how they get told what to do by dark money front groups, all of that has added an entire dimension on top of the climate denial problem. And then if you look at what we're working on right now, the voting rights fight that we're having in the Senate, the reason we have to have that fight is because voter suppression laws, really awful voter suppression laws were propagated throughout Republican state legislatures. And we hear, we hear from the leaked tape from Heritage Action, the people who did that crowing about it. We did that, they say, they didn't even know it was us. We wrote the bills, we hid behind what they called local sentinels who were their um, outlets in local states. So, you know, behind Mitch McConnell, behind voter suppression, behind the Supreme Court capture and behind climate denial is the same crew of very powerful billionaires, big family trusts and corporate interests. And they work very well together and they've been hidden for a long time and they've directed the uh, really bad things that have happened in our country um, as a result. And it's all happened more or less from the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United a little over 10 years ago. That's kind of the background. Now I'll talk whatever you want to talk about. Okay, so um, who's behind, before we, okay, oh, there's so many questions. First of all, who's behind the Citizens United case? Who, who brought that to the Supreme Court? And I heard you say, um, not in this call, but prior that you know, there's a lot of attempt to have cases actually lose in lower courts so it can get to SCOTUS. Is this one of those cases? No, Citizens United was brought by a little right-wing organization that wanted to run a uh, TV movie against Hillary Clinton, about a half hour long. And they sued over their right to do that, whether they'd have to disclose their donors and all of that. And it came into the court actually as a very narrow decision about that specific film and the specific question about that film, what a lawyer would call an as applied challenge. Um, but the chief justice Roberts didn't like it that way. Um, so he actually did something very weird. He changed the question presented to the court. When you do a brief in the Supreme Court, Part of it is question presented. What is this about? What's the question presented? He changed that. 
he opened it up to allow it to be an entire challenge, not just as applied in that case, but to the leg legitimacy of the whole campaign finance law. And then off they went, the five uh, Republican judges and did essentially what Mitch McConnell wanted and undid campaign finance and la launched unlimited money, launched unlimited corporate money in particular, and launched the ability for these groups to hide, which is really ironic because the, the, the trick to their decision that let them get there was their pretense that this was all gonna be transparent. And because it was all gonna be transparent, you wouldn't have to worry about corruption and therefore Congress couldn't legislate. If there's a threat of corruption, then Congress can legislate to fix it. So they had to pretend there was no threat of corruption, which meant they had to say it was all gonna be transparent. And twice we took cases to the Supreme Court to try to get them to look at the fact that it actually was not transparent. They were provably wrong. And they've refused to take either of those two cases, the Bullock case and the Liu case. So, you know, they have the look of being a bit in on it in what they scrupulously refuse to see in front of their faces about the error of the decision. Huh. Um, can you pull pull back a little bit and just talk us through um, Article Three? And because I'm not a constitutional lawyer, clearly, um, talk us through Article Three and sort of what the framers intended for the judicial branch, uh, the um, Supreme Court. You know, what is it supposed to do, and how do you see it? How's it functioning right now? Um, yeah, um, it is obviously supposed to be independent. And to the extent that it's been captured by these dark money interests who are loyal to the Federalist Society and its donors, obviously it has failed at that. Um, it's supposed to be modest, not go charging off to make decisions. One of its principles for years was that it would make no decision larger than what was required to settle the case in front of it, to resolve the dispute that it was actually presented with. So when the court took the opportunity to completely upend campaign finance over one little film, that was inconsistent with that doctrine of modesty. And then critically under the constitution, because you know Hamilton and the uh, Federalists had to defend this court in the constitution and the Federalist papers and all against the charge of the anti-Federalists that this was gonna be the way that big special interests and monarchists and so forth used their power because it was so undemocratic. They said, no, it's only gonna be able to make decisions about an actual matter that actually comes to it. An actual, they'll just decide the case in front of it. And it's called the case or controversy clause of the constitution. And now they're violating that as well, most pronouncedly at this very minute in the case to knock out the Clean Air Act at the Environmental Protection Agency brought by the West Virginia, of course, Attorney General and a bunch of these front groups. And they're challenging a regulation that, that doesn't exist. The, there, there is no current regulation and yet the court went forward with the case. So it's a very peculiar situation in which it, they're clearly, clearly reaching across guidelines to try to do things that the big donors want. That's 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 scary. <laughs> that's yeah. really scary. Yeah. Um, and and how, what are the guardrails? What what kind of um, 
I mean, obviously, if you're going to go work in the executive branch or you're, you know, going to be in Congress, there are certain disclosures that you have to make. There are certain um, conflicts of interest that you have to disclose. What what are the um, structural constitutional guardrails on judicial appointees? Are there any? Um, you have to distinguish between judicial appointees and the Supreme Court. Okay. There is a code of ethics that applies to all federal judges, except that the Supreme Court has said that it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. So you may recall there was an ethics complaint pending what was considered a serious ethics complaint pending against Brett Kavanaugh when he was on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals subject to the ethics code. When he got onto the Supreme Court, he was no longer subject to the ethics code. So they had to close the ongoing ethics investigation because he wasn't subject to their jurisdiction any longer. So that's a particularly rank um, example. They also don't have to do as much reporting as the equivalent level members of the executive branch or of Congress. Um, and there's an awful lot of, you know, gift and travel, uh, vacation, hospitality, and things like that, that they receive unreported. You mean, so someone can like fly them somewhere and they go and we never yeah. know about it. Yeah, wow. we got a little window on it with Justice Scalia, as you may recall. He died at a hunting lodge where he was getting an all expenses paid uh, free trip with a bunch of people who were involved in right wing political activities, including his host, who was who'd recently had a case. His company recently had a case before the Supreme Court. Um, so everything about that was highly suspect. He'd had the same situation, you know, with Dick Cheney going on that trip where. While the case about Cheney and his energy uh, committee. Were pen was pending before the court. He was off shooting with Dick Cheney. Um, and those are two, but there's been some research done and, and he actually did it dozens of times. Okay, that's... <laughs> is, okay. Often with Republican political interests with him. I mean, these were not just bad enough if he just snuck off for a family vacation, but it's yeah. actually like a little gathering of politically interested people. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about um, the Roberts Court? And there are a lot of questions coming in that I'm definitely going to get to. I just want to get, I, I feel like we still need some groundwork on how this all works. So, you know, describe to us, like, what's the process for the Federalist Society to, like, add a judge to their list that they, we all know that they submitted the list to Donald Trump's, uh, you know, team to vet certain um, judges to become Supreme Court justices. And so I wonder what that looks like. And then I'd like yep. you to sort of talk us through um, what is going on in the Roberts Court with the multiple amicus briefs that gets filed by say, like yep. or funded by the Bradley Society. Um, the, the five to four decisions, I believe you said there are 80 of them under Chief Justice Roberts. Yep. What does that do to the court? Talk us through a little bit about how that works, please. So here's kind of a worst case dark money scenario at the court. Um, a vacancy opens up on the Supreme Court and the president, Trump, announces that he's gonna hand off the selection of the next nominee to the Federalist Society. 
the Federalist Society becomes the turnstile through which the nominee has to go. And the Federalist Society at the same time that it's acting as the turnstile is taking huge anonymous donations. So you're, you're able to buy your way anonymously into the selection process for a Supreme Court judge. Uh, that happened three times with Gorsuch, with Kavanaugh, and then with Barrett. And it kind of happened four times, but the earlier time was with Garland when the dark money operation stopped him from, from coming on the court. So three judges went through, who are on the court now, went through that Federalist Society funded by big anonymous donations selection process. When they were named, a second group called Judicial Crisis Network kicked in with huge TV ads to put pressure on Republican senators to stay with them and swing state senators to vote for them. And they were receiving checks in the amount of $15 million, $17 million, big checks, bigger than you or I ordinarily write, to fund these campaigns, also anonymous. So probably the same donors as giving to the Federalist Society. Then you get your judge on the court confirmed, and then the amicus groups show up. These are front groups that have no purpose other than to file briefs and do what their donors tell them to do. It's not like the American Medical Association, which is a big, you know, existing group that files an amicus. This is, you know, Montana Lawyers for Peace and Prosperity. I mean, I'm making up the name, but it's a, it's a front group. They then come in, in some cases by the dozens and really big cases in a flotilla of as big as 50 groups to signal to the judges, this is what we want. This is what we really, 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 really want. And then at the end, you get this array of decisions where the court breaks on partisan grounds, five to four through most of them. And there's an obvious, anybody with a political head can see there's an obvious Republican interest in the case. And in those cases that were five to four that were partisan and that had a Republican donor interest, it was an 80 to zero route for the Republican party. So the court has really produced an astonishing pattern, a statistical pattern of wins for the Republican donor class, which correlates with who funds the amicus groups, which correlates with who funded the TV campaigns, which correlates with who funded the Federalist Society choosing them in the first place. And so it's that, a fine mess. It sounds like a fine mess. Is that an anomaly in um, Supreme Court history? Yes, that, it's an anomaly 80... in Supreme Court history. It's okay. an anomaly in the world. I mean, frankly, if, if American judges went to a conference in some other country and that other country had set up a private organization that took secret money to pick the judges for the president of the country, we'd all be laughing at it and snickering at it and writing articles, haughty articles about how could they, be, you know, what a terrible way to handle the judicial business. It lends itself to all sorts of corruption and influence. It'd be a terrible thing to do. Harumph, harumph. Yeah. But it, it's us. We're actually doing us. it. It's right. embarrassing. Um, we've got a couple of questions from um, folks, Ron Breyer and Robin Shandine, sorry, are wondering about, you know, behind, who's behind this. So uh, Ron brings up the American Legislative Exchange Council. Alec, heard yep. that acronym thrown around a lot. And of course, you know, we all know the Koch brothers wondering, um, you know, obviously they have a huge interest in the fossil fuel industry, but yeah. um, would love to sort of hear some of the 
you know, orgs and people behind it. Yeah. So it, it traces back heavily to the Koch brothers archipelago of political front group organizations. That whole scheme and array of front groups is very, very much involved in this. It traces definitely back to fossil fuel money and interests. It traces back to big family foundations like the SCAFE and Bradley foundations. Um, but it traces back to, I would say for the dominant, like 80 to 90% of its funding to a fairly small group, you know, enough that they can actually have representatives sit in a room together and make collective decisions, which I think they do. I think this is all very well organized and scripted and there are people like this character, Leonard Leo, who was the organizer of the um, court packing operation at the Federalist Society and knew all the big donors because he'd been the uh, sort of um, donor whisperer for Republican Supreme Court nominees for a long time. Interesting character. And if, it, you know, I, I said that the Federalist Society did the picking and then something different called the Judicial Crisis Network did the ad campaigns. So the Federalist Society and the Judicial Crisis Network were on the same hallway in the same building in Washington, DC. And when the Washington Post did a big expose of Leonard Leo, shortly after he left that role in the Federalist Society, the woman who was the spokesperson for the Judicial Crisis Network came down the hall to take his spot in the Federalist Society and help with the Barrett case. And he went down the hall and joined something called the Honest Elections Project, which is what under Virginia law is called a fictitious name, a name under which an organization is allowed to operate for, guess what, the Judicial Crisis Network. They basically just swapped organizations, probably bumped in the hallway with their cardboard boxes of stuff, snickering, because the whole thing is just such a sham. Can you um, talk to us about whether or not there is an equivalent um, in for Democratic donors, big donors? Um, is there something on that side? Um, one of our one of our attendees, Susan Bevan, brought up that um, you know the fact that labor unions try to give huge campaign donations to usually Democratic candidates. Um, members were not happy the fact that their dues were being restricted just for candidates they didn't like. And Citizens United um, was sort of allowed those contributors to then give to candidates they prefer. So I'm just wondering if you can sort of talk us through the equivalency, if there is one. And um, <laughs> anyways, I'm just trying to get a lay of the land for- No, I don't see it. On what I see is a Democratic Party that is always one or two or three steps behind in the technology of how you win elections. So when Citizens United first let unlimited money go, it was essentially 100% Republican unlimited money. They were ready from the get-go. I think some of those groups actually saw it coming. And so instantly they had money out. Um, I mean, they like quadrupled the amount spent between, I think the decision was in January of 2010. There was an election in November of 2010. And by that election, 
they'd flooded money into the system. It didn't take them any time at all to get going. We were still wandering around whistling and looking at the you know moon and the stars. And it took a long, long time. I mean, years later, I spoke with a Republican friend and I said, look, we got to get rid of this stuff. This dark money is just poisoning our politics. It's disgusting. We got to get rid of it. He said, you're right. It's disgusting. And to get this solved, you're going to have to raise a lot more of it. Because why the hell would we ever give up a tool that gives us a 10 to 1 advantage over you? So go out and you should have your own dark money. And then when you've got enough that you frighten us a little bit, then you know that's the time when we can actually talk about getting rid of the damn stuff. So we're actually there now in some respects, depending on how you measure it and what you look at and how well things are hidden. There's a case to be made that in the last election, there actually might've been more Democrat dark money, but it hasn't kind of metastasized out into that big operation that you know, plans well ahead and you know, gets all those voter suppression laws in every single Republican legislature in the country that can spend decades getting ready to capture a Supreme Court and have a feeder to get people through that sets up 50 different litigation front groups that can all come in and offer their orchestrated opinion um, to the court. So it looks like you know something legit is going on. We're, we're operating way behind that level of sophistication and coordination. You know, at best we've got like the American Constitutional Society is the equivalent of the Federalist Society, but they've never had anything like the role of the Federalist Society in judicial selection. Senator Whitehouse, I'd love to switch um, to uh, look at voting rights. And sure. um, obviously, I believe Shelby was a 5-4 case as well. Shelby County, it was. Yep. Okay, so can you, uh, let's talk about what Shelby did. And um, there's a recent case from Arizona um, that continued to sort of take us in this direction. Talk us through what the court has said about federal voting legislation and um, what it's sort of, we give us the lay of the land for what's going yeah. on now. And we will definitely bring it to a lot of different remedies um, that we'd like to talk about too. But uh, let's so, discuss voting rights and then I'd like to pivot to the big lie. Shelby County was the, was the big one. Shelby County was, as a county, was recruited by a Republican operative to bring a case challenging what's called the pre-clearance provision of the uh, Voting Rights Act. And under the pre-clearance provision of the Voting Rights Act, which had just been reauthorized by huge bipartisan majority in the Senate and the House, um, states that had a really terrible history of discriminating against minority voters were under a constraint that they had to get the Department of Justice's approval to pass a law that would interfere with people's voting rights. Or if the Department of Justice was being difficult, they could go to a court and get permission. So the Supreme Court threw that out based on no factual record, just its own opinion that racism was over and that nobody needed to worry about Southern legislatures discriminating against minorities. 
and out preclearance went. So now the Southern states, the preclearance states were free to pass laws like that. And then while those laws were in effect and influencing the election, the Department of Justice would then have to come in and try to stop them. And the Supreme Court was very, and courts were very um, unhelpful about protecting that. But at the lower court level, you know, it was interesting. You've got a case where a state legislature targets black voters so specifically that the court says they were targeted with surgical precision. And that was a clear enough finding that the, that the circuit court of appeals made the same finding with surgical precision, they went after minority voters and the Supreme Court wouldn't overturn it. So uh, clearly they were wrong about the fact that they had presumed that racism was over and that legislatures wouldn't do this stuff, but they never went back to um, review their own wrong determination. They just bowled ahead, a little bit like they bowled ahead after their wrong determination that all the big money spending in Citizens United was gonna be transparent. I mean, it's impossible to believe that that's true because it's patently false. There's billions in dark money, but they just, they don't, they don't care. They just stay with it. So Shelby County really unleashed a lot of voter suppression. And then in the wake of the uh, Trump election, it made everybody really angry that this couldn't happen again. So now that they could do voter suppression, now that they'd seen it work in a few former preclearance states, they decided, okay, let's propagate this everywhere that there's a Republican legislature, let's just go. And that was again, a dark money proposition. Heritage Action spent tens of millions of dollars and they used their Sentinel groups like ALEC, very involved in all of this, the uh, Legislative Exchange Council. Can, uh... It, I, I don't totally understand the definition of conservative, a conservative judge or a conservative court, but- There isn't one any longer. Okay, but traditionally, like what would have been a description of a conservative court? Because it seems to me that this court, the Roberts court has kind of instituted its own um, belief system on, you know, on how people vote in this country or discrimination in certain states or i mean am i am i barking up the wrong tree on the idea of what's conservative traditionally a conservative judge would have had judicially conservative principles and those would have been uh judicial modesty meaning don't make big sweeping decisions um they would have been respect for the elected branches of congress there would have been federalism, respect for states' rights. They had invented originalism um, as a doctrine that was very convenient for their big donors because the more you can go backwards in time, the more you push back at civil rights, the more you go back before the corporate era when there was no need to restrain corporations, the less of an argument there is for regulation to restrain big corporations. So. I, I don't accept originalism as a very legit doctrine, but they had it. And those would be the doctrines you'd look at. But if you look at the 80 decisions I talk about, half of them violate one or more of those doctrines. So 
the doctrine is a method to get to a goal, but if the doctrine inhibits them getting to the goal, they abandon the doctrine and just go straight to the goal. Okay, well, that, <laughs> that does make sense. Not really, but- um, and that's not I, conservative, that's just capture. No, no, it, it sure isn't. So, yeah. uh, so we really can't use that word to describe this court. No. I, okay. Um, no. Okay, it's so- It's a misnomer when it's used to describe this court. Right, okay. So uh, we do have to turn our attention to um, the big lie that the 2020 election was fraudulent and there was widespread voting fraud and Donald Trump actually won. The reason we need to do that is um, because you and Jane Mayer of The New Yorker um, has done some excellent reporting that a lot of these um, big Republican dark money donors quickly pivoted to start to fund the big lie. The audits in Arizona um, sounded like they were completely funded by some of these folks. Um, it sounded like even groups were renamed really rapidly to become election integrity groups. Yeah. Um, so tell us some, uh, I think we all need to know this. This is extremely alarming. Um, um, there is the, if you want to read, if you haven't read the big money behind the big lie, I highly recommend everyone reading it. Uh, Senator Whitehouse is quoted in it several times, but um, give us, give us the skinny on the situation here. Yeah, there's actually a brand new article just out today and I only saw it's headline in my clip. So I haven't even read it yet, but it's about how the DeVos family and others are behind groups that were at the heart of the big lie and you know how that led to January 6th and all that. So I'll give you an example of how all this ties together. You remember that the Federalist Society is on a hallway in Washington, DC. And if you walk down that same hallway, you get to the Judicial Crisis Network and that they switched personnel and have enormous amount of, of common uh, activity and uh, interests. The Judicial Crisis Network, they're, they're, they pair usually. This is like, what is the latest and greatest to be a dark money political operation? You pair a 501c3 and a 501c4 those two kinds of organizations allowed under the tax code. So they pair up. So the um, Judicial Crisis Network has a 501c3 judicial education project. And they're essentially the same thing. They overlap enormously, same offices, same people, same everything. They then go and they do this fictitious name thing. And they, next thing you know, there's an honest elections project, an honest elections project action, a 501c3 and a 501c4. And they are, they are the Judicial Crisis Network and the Judicial Education Project. They're just allowed to operate under those fictitious names. Fictitious name being a term of legal art under Virginia law. I'm not disparaging them by saying that. That's what they legally are. And if you want a preview of coming attractions, their next one is the Freedom to Learn and Freedom to Learn action so that they can jump into the fight about critical race theory. And again, same organization. So these six, and if you add uh, the, there's sort of a mothership that I won't get into, but all of these organizations are the same organization. They just have different masks that they, that they wear. And the Honest Elections Project in that masking is what has been involved in a lot of the voter suppression work and litigation 
in the South. They were very active in Georgia trying to defeat Biden, Warnock, and Ossoff. Is the goal of this um, effort, it, it seems like these groups have been sort of involved in, you know, making it harder to vote, particularly for certain groups to vote, yep. not expanding civil rights or reaction to, you know, civil the civil rights movement in the 60s and the progress that was made there. But it, what's the goal now? Is it to install, reinstall Trump? Do they want Trump to be president? We know the Kochs were very dismissive of Trump. Or is it they're just jumping on Trump's coattails and the big lie so that they can continue to do this work? What, what's at play here, Senator Whitehouse? Um, what's fundamentally at play is the quest for power. And they would obviously rather have Trump than Democrats. Um, and they obviously want Mitch McConnell who packed the court for them, which can do undemocratic things that even Republicans won't vote for to continue to you know, have his position um, allowing judges or not allowing judges onto the court. Um, so it is very, very much a quest for power. Um, I have a theory, which I think is hard to prove, um, but I have a theory that when the Kochs despised Trump and were not going to support him and might even have opposed him because he was against their um, agenda in so many ways, that a truce was reached. And if you think of like medieval baronies, House of Coke and House of Trump had to figure out how to get along with each other in the kingdom of Republicana. And it looks like that the deal that they made was that Trump would announce a list of Supreme Court judges who he would pick from and the Koch funded Federalist Society crowd would pick the list. So the Kochs would control who could get onto the Supreme Court through the Federalist Society turnstile. And he also promised that all of the energy and environment jobs in his administration would be given to the most low life uh, fossil fuel flunkies and stooges you could possibly imagine. So the Scott Pruitts and so forth showed up to um, run environmental agencies. And with that, the Coke objection to the Trump seemed to evaporate. So I wasn't in the room and I don't know that anybody was in the room or knows about whether that was actually negotiated, but it sure looks uh, to a careful observer just from behavior that that's what happened. A deal was struck. So if that deal were to hold, the Cokes would be happy to go back to it. They got a Supreme Court and they got um, four years of, of not only no progress against climate change and their pollution, but actual setbacks for uh, the environment. Yeah, and we saw sort of wide scale, just uh, felt very corruptive at federal agencies. It felt like, you know, Trump had installed you know, everyone who was profiting from the agency where they were working. I mean, Betsy DeVos yeah. is a prime example, right? Yeah. Um, okay, so let's turn to the legislation. If anybody's seen the movie Death of Stalin. No, doesn't sound fun. It's a hysterical movie. It's really okay. dark humor, but <laughs> it's kind of a slightly comedic version of everybody in 
the Russian government, you know, high levels around Stalin. And they're all such a bunch of freeloaders, suck-ups, ne'er-do-wells, also rands and sleazeballs. It's, it's, it's kind of horrifying to watch. And this was like death of Stalin without the murders. It was really a creep show, you know, bar scene in Star Wars type operation. Well, my brother just came in to chime that he said it's a very funny movie. So Friday night, everyone, watch it. Death of Stalin. You'll like uh, it. Yeah. So I do want to find out uh, about Dark Money's influence on the legislative branch. You've given us some highlights about Dark Money's influence on the judiciary and on judicial branch, the executive branch. So tell us how it works in Congress. What's, what does this look like? Because... Um... It's, it's usually done mostly through super PACs. Super PACs didn't exist before Citizens United. They were created after Citizens United to take advantage of Citizens United. And a super PAC is allowed to spend unlimited money in a race. And it's also allowed to accept unlimited money to spend in that race. And while a super PAC is nominally required to disclose its donors. It can take donations from front groups that aren't required to disclose their donors. So if I'm Joe Plutocrat and I want to try to buy a Senate election and drop $20 million into the race, I open a little shell corporation with a name like, um, let's say it's a Pennsylvania race, Pennsylvania's for peace, and puppies and prosperity. And I put $20 million into Pennsylvanians for peace and puppies and prosperity. And that $20 million then goes to the super PAC and the super PAC reports, oh, I got $20 million from Pennsylvanians for peace, puppies and prosperity. Nobody knows who's really behind it. And then the super PAC can go in and spend money, hire campaign folks, operate in the race. In theory, they're supposed to operate separate from the candidate, but usually, they're set up for a single candidate in a single race. So like how independent is that? With former campaign operatives for the candidate, family members of the candidate. And it's so close that the campaign can actually post ads on its website that it likes, that the super PAC can then pick off the website and run. So there's really no independence. So that's how big, big Citizens United money gets into political races anonymized. And of course, if you can do that, then the people you want to talk to are Mitch McConnell and you know, the leaders of the party and say to them, I'm willing to help your candidate in Pennsylvania to the tune of $20 million, but you damn well better not screw around with climate change because I'm a coal baron. Don't worry. Don't worry. Got your back. For 20 million bucks, I'll take it. So it, it, is, it has created an enormous amount of secrecy in politics. It's created an enormous move of power up to leadership in Congress. Um, and it's driven big, big smelly deals, um, very underground because they happen. I mean, if, if, if the coal guy's company had spent the $20 million, you'd see it and you'd start digging around. And if the coal guy's company had given it to the super PAC and was reported, you'd see it. People could start digging around. But when it's all obscured like this, there is a deal. 
there is a quid pro quo, but it's hidden. And it means that, you know, in the right circumstances, the leadership of the party can call in a bombardment. They can go to somebody they know is a big spender who owes them, you know, who wants to stop climate litigation, sorry, climate legislation, and say, you know, I need you to pound these three candidates. And off they go. And, you know, $20 million per candidate, boom, done. And for them, 60 million bucks is nothing because the climate solution is going to cost them that in the billions. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> now we need to get to some fixes because this is just more than I can bear. Um, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. Before we do that, can we just do some really general? I've got three questions for you. Um, some from the chat and some from a couple of us at Big Ten, possible corruption conflict of, conflict of interest. So the three questions are, Ginny Thomas's activism, what's going on with that? Didn't she hire buses to go to the January 6th rally? What's going on there? Two, does anyone care about Justice Kavanaugh's debt repayment? Is anyone listening to that? And what can be done if there is, a, is there a remedy when a justice lies under oath before Congress? Because it sure feels like one of them surely did. So um, as to uh, Mrs. Thomas, not much because the judge himself is not subject to the code of ethics. So a spouse certainly isn't. And while it may seem like bad form to be ruling on cases where your wife is an activist on that very issue. Um, the court has never done anything about it. And uh, there's nothing that we can do about it short of an impeachment. Uh, on the Kavanaugh thing, there's a suggestion that his family paid it off, in which case that's you know, kind of understandable. My boy, he's going to go be a Supreme Court justice. He doesn't need to carry this debt. Let's just pay it. Um, the thing we're still looking at in the Kavanaugh situation is the FBI investigation into Judge into uh, Professor Lazy Ford's accusations, because that was a fake investigation, and we want to dig through exactly in what ways it was fake and show how fake it was, because you certainly don't want FBI investigations for high positions in the U.S. government to be fake. In the Senate, we really want to be able to rely on them. So that's the piece in the Kavanaugh that's um, alive uh, and well. And as for removing judges who lie, again, the only way to remove them is by impeachment. You've seen how those votes are required. And you know, particularly with the politicized court, if they're willing to vote for Kavanaugh under those circumstances, the idea that they're going to vote to impeach him, not going to happen. Yeah, not going to happen. Uh, let's move into some legislative remedies, Senator Whitehouse. Lots of things to think about. One is around um, codifying Roe uh, into law, federal yep. law, should it be overturned, which it sure feels like it will be. Um, and I'm just wondering what you think of a, you know, protection of women's reproductive health if it's strictly voted along party lines, what would that look like? How could you, how could Roe be codified? Um, with 10 Republican votes. 
or with an agreement that we do not have about how to get certain measures around a filibuster. Okay, so at this point, what you're saying is if Roe falls, if the Dobbs case is decided and Roe is gutted, we there's no chance we can codify Roe in federal legislation because of the filibuster. Is that right? Um, the chance is exactly equal to the chance of getting 10 Republicans to vote to do it. And when I say 10, that means every single one of them would then be the swing vote. And they wouldn't want to do that, you know, for sort of ad rhetorical purposes and advertisements. So it was the swing vote that made it possible. So they often in a tough vote would like some buffering. So you probably would have to have 12, not 10. And I think everybody on this call is pretty capable of going down the list of the Republican senators and seeing whether you can get to 12 who'd vote for that. Yeah. Um, is, there, is there a link? I mean, can you tell us a little bit what you felt or what you were thinking when you heard the Supreme Court's decision to not, um, to not change, to not, I'm sorry, when they upheld SB8 the first time and then the second time, what were you thinking? What were what was your reaction to that? Were you surprised? Were you, how were you feeling about that? Because it just seems so egregious to those of us who don't have law degrees. The shadow docket case, right? Yes. It was clearly an aberration from what you would expect the court to do. I mean, you had a law that was in plain violation of existing Supreme Court precedent. And the question is, what's gonna be the state of affairs while we consider whether we should change the Supreme Court precedent? And presumably the state of affairs while you consider whether to change it should be the status quo prevails because it's the law, it's the precedent. And a lot of those judges had made personal assurances to people, particularly Kavanaugh to Susan Collins, that they saw, you know, Roe versus Wade was precedent. So it was surprising to say the least that they'd make that decision on the shadow docket, that they'd make it without proper deliberation and argument, and that they'd make it um, in many respects, they, what they really did, since that was more of a uh, procedural decision, is they used a procedural decision to allow Texas to undo a standing constitutional right, at least temporarily. And that's a weird outcome. And of course, it was, you know, partisan. Guess what? 6-3. Yeah. Um, is there, when you think about uh, congressional I'll action- take it back. Okay, sorry. I think Roberts voted. I think he did. With the Democrats. Yeah. I forget whether it was on one or both of the two decisions that were made. The liberal justices, yeah. Um, when you think about Congress, uh, obviously voting rights and protection election certification is like front and center now. Um, it all feels like we have a very finite amount of time to maybe move on this. Uh, ahead of the 2022 election. When you think about that, um, what are the chances of this happening, Senator Whitehouse? You're there, you, you're, you're in the Senate, what's going on? Can we, can we 
just override the filibuster for this? Is there any appetite for it? Are you, will this stand up to uh, Roberts court if we can pass um, like the John Lewis Advancement Act or, you know, Manchin's bill? How are we feeling about this? Because I think we're all pretty nervous um, at Big Tent. Yeah, well, we are, um, you know, jammed up against the decision. We're going to do this in the next few days. And um, we're first going to get on the bill. and We've got a device for getting on the bill with 50 votes. But then, and then we'll debate it. And then the vote on the merits will come up. And the vote on the merits will be decided. Um, and it probably won't be 60. <laughs> so the parliamentarian will rule that the measure did not pass. And we'll have to challenge the parliamentarian's decision with an alternative rule that all 50 of us would have to agree on to make it work. And we don't have agreement on that as I came into this call tonight. Whether an agreement miraculously materializes between now and the key vote is TBD. Okay, that wasn't really what I wanted you to say. <laughs> it's not what I want to say. No, uh, we really we would have liked a little bit uh, better news actually. Yeah. Um, are you, are you seeing any sort of, I, I'm, I'm seeing in the chat, there's some good news from work, um, from state laws around dark money, campaign finance. Um, what are you seeing on state laws that maybe could be transferred over to federal law around campaign finance or dark money? Obviously it was in the, for the people act, but that's DOA. Um, there was some legislation around dark money. In yeah, um, there are things that states can do. My state, Rhode Island, for instance, has a rule that requires um, disclosure of donations and a dark money group sued and took the case to the First Circuit. And the stage right now is that Judge Celia on the First Circuit, a Republican appointee, um, threw out their challenge and let the law stand um and said that it's actually really important in a citizen's democracy that citizens be able to identify who is speaking in the public sphere and so coming into the public arena and speaking from behind a mask is not favored so that was a small success for you know daylight and transparency but at around the same time the um six judges of the justices of the Supreme Court uh, decided a case called Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta. Americans for Prosperity Foundation is the twin 501c3 to the Americans for Prosperity organization, which is the 501c4, the political organization, which is the Koch brothers central dominant political organization. And they sued to keep their donors private and the Supreme Court threw out a state law that had required their donors to be disclosed to the state of California 
So the state of California could police, and only the state of California, by the way, not to the public. So the state of California could police whether there was tax fraud going on because contributions to these things are deductible, right? So if you're just swapping money around the family and making a tax deductible, you know that's a crooked deal and you've got to know who's there in order to figure it out. The court shut that down and created for the first time in American history, a constitutional right to anonymous funding. And knowing full well that this is a completely political organization, you can, it's a, it's a really ominous signal about the court creating a constitutional right to anonymous political funding. Okay, uh, all right. Never Other, happened in the history of the court. Right, other remedies, um, Senator Whitehouse, what do you think of term limits for judges, expanding the court past nine, um, limiting lifetime appointments, you know, getting away with that. Uh, what do you, how are you feeling about any of those potential remedies? I think we've got to do, you know, any and all of that to try to salvage the court. In the meantime, I think a lot of transparency would do. I think stuff that's pretty hard to quarrel about is the court should be under an ethics code. Somebody should have some accountability for policing it. They should not be able to go on free vacations paid for by other people to you know, resorts and not have to report that they're getting free vacations given to them. And anybody who shows up in court with an amicus brief or whatever, needs to identify who they really are. You can't come in wearing a mask of some phony baloney front group. So I think those are easy things that we should be able to knock off right away. The political money that was spent on the campaigns for the justices, that should be disclosed just like political campaign money so you know who's behind it. If anything, it's more important so the judges can determine whether there's a conflict of interest. So those are easy things to do. I, I really want to make sure, because Democrats are horrible at product rollout, that we don't badge ourselves with an extreme solution before we brought the American public along with the need for the problem. You know, with understanding that there's a need for a solution because there is a problem. And I think, you know, I've watched Green New Deal turn from a wonderful idea into something that Republicans beat us up with. Um, we certainly got clobbered with defund the police. Those became huge political liabilities that lost Democrat seats in the House uh, for sure, and perhaps in the Senate as well. And I just wanna make sure we don't turn pack the court into another one of those Republican clubs because we haven't made the case yet. So my duty in all of this, I think, to the country, to the party, to the Senate, is for me to make that case as hard as I can, which I'm doing by coming on the show in every way that I can you know, get myself heard so that people understand that we actually do need to make some pretty serious changes at the court. It cannot continue as it is. Do you think you'll have any uh, bipartisan buy-in to that? Any bipartisanship going on there? No, this is this is what kind of the you know one of the red line no fly zones. Um, it's really hard for Republicans to work on this 
because they will get blown up. Remember that Mitch McConnell's funding, the, the big dark money funding, the super PAC funding that he can launch uh, to protect his position and protect his senators is vitally important to him. Without that, he's just another guy walking around. Yeah. And ah. it's that same money and those same folks that have packed the court and he did it for them. So the nexus here, this is like trying to take away the crown jewels. It's the most important thing other than dark money itself. There's nothing that they will fight harder to protect than control over the Supreme Court. Senator Whitehouse, we're coming to the end of our time and we need a little bit of uh, positivity and hope. Um, so give us some, Here's tell some us positivity. what we can do. Tell us what we can do. We need direction for the next, uh, for this year, for 2022. We need, tell us what we can do, what conversations we need to have. We need to follow yep. you on social media. There's your Twitter feed. What else? Give us some positivity here. One of the elements of our voting rights bill is called the Disclose Act. That happens to be my bill. It would eliminate dark money in politics. Anything over $10,000, you'd have to disclose who the donor was. And we chase it back through the shell corporations, through the 501c3s. There's no way you can hide by going one step deeper. So it really creates transparency. If you really create transparency, then a lot of the dark money goes away. Because it's one thing to spend $20 million in a race and say that you're, you know, Montanans for peace and puppies and prosperity. It's another thing to go to Montana and spend $20 million in a race and have to fess up that you're ExxonMobil. And so I think a lot of the, the filthy big money effect on our politics abates. All of the dark money effect abates. Politics gets a lot less slimy because if you've got a fake group that you can basically discard like a Kleenex after the race, you can make it do any horrible thing because nobody's really accountable. Whereas if the payer behind the ad has to be accountable for what was said and own it then and for the rest of their lives, you get much more decent stream of discourse. So for a lot of reasons, it's really important to do that. It's also the number one thing that the dark money crowd wants to get rid of because it is their weapon. It's the weapon through which they terrorize and control politics. So fighting for the Disclose Act in the Voting Rights Act, outside of the Voting Rights Act, beside the Voting Rights Act, fighting for that is really important. And that's the thing that Jane Mayer, when she got wind of that tape where Mitch McConnell's minions and the Koch brothers' minions were talking together, and they said, there's one thing we can't dirty up. There's one thing that we, no matter how we try to make our people hate it, they actually like it, everybody likes it, it's this, it's the dark money corruption stuff. So it's a winning political issue for us. It puts us on the right side and it makes it really hard for Republicans to explain why they're protecting big dirty dark money and independents love it. So if we're trying to attract independent voters, it's a huge banner to wave and attract them to our cause. Okay, so we all need to call our senators. We're in a lot of different states all over and everyone needs to encourage them to pass the Disclose Act in any way, shape or form they can, it sounds like. It Is needs right? to get voted on. It's not enough to have it sitting there with a bunch of co-sponsors. We need to vote on it. Bring it to a vote, okay. Yep.
All right, Senator Whitehouse, I'm going to take that as the hopeful nugget that you've given us tonight. I so appreciate your time and your work. And I so appreciate you banging this drum because it really needs to be banged. Um, <laughs> well, you've been a great host, Kitty. Thank you very much. And thank you. Uh, thanks to everybody who, who joined us. I hope this has been helpful, irritating, infuriating, instructional, and that it makes sure you stay committed because the job of citizen in this democracy has never been more important. That is so well said. So I'm gonna let you take us out, Senator Whitehouse. Thank you so much. I hope everyone joins us for Liz Cheney and Galvanize. Everyone take care, stay well, have a great night. See you soon, the fight is on. Both hands and make a stash.